Let's turn now for our scripture reading to the book of Revelation chapter 7. The book of the Revelation chapter 7, commencing our reading in the verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear together God's holy word. The Lord help us and give us ears to receive his word and hearts receptive and that will apply his word by his spirit. The Lord help us to receive his word this night by faith. The Lord give us that precious gift of faith increasingly in our hearts and lives. Revelation chapter 7 verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Asia were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed twelve thousand. And after this I beheld a lower great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried, with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and the four beasts fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God for ever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And may he be pleased to bless that public reading of his precious Holy word to our hearts here this night. Let us pray. Well, dear congregation, I ask you to please turn your prayerful attention once again to the words that I read to you in your hearing there in the book of the Revelation, chapter 7. We arrive in this chapter this evening in our week-by-week studies going through this book through expository ministry. We come now toward the end of what is known as the second cycle we've seen before Remember when I gave the introduction to the book of Revelation, there are very clearly seven cycles, and they are what we call synchronous. They are all happening, as it were, at the same time. It's like, I suppose, seeing things from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the year A.D. 33, and now John, some many years later, the last living apostle on the island of Patmos, suffering for persecution as a Christian, things that occur in the last times. Of course, the last times are this current epoch from the ascension of Christ up until his second coming. That's the great last climactic event, the coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the end of the world will be. And what we see throughout these seven cycles are things that take place, but from different angles. One has also described it as, I suppose you could walk through seven different rooms. You could go from one door to another, and then you see, it's like in Pilgrim's Progress. As one is taken in the house, you see different things, different rooms, but they're all leading to one final event. And we see once again, as we saw in chapter 5 and chapter 6, the saints in heaven. The curtain is momentarily drawn back. Just before we come to the seventh seal in the second cycle, the curtain is drawn back. Remember in chapter 6 what we saw represented by the four horses. The first horse and the rider upon the horse is Christ upon that white horse. He that has a crown and he that is glorious and goes forth conquering and to conquer and who we see in Revelation chapter 19 and the verse 11. He who eventually has many crowns upon his head. He is the first rider riding out on his horse and the successive ones that follow the red horse, the black horse and then the pale horse are all subservient to his great purposes. What do those horses represent? You remember the red horse represented blood, murder, martyrdom. The black horse represented what? It represented economic hardship, but also greed. The rider on the black horse had a set of scales in his hand, and there was to be famine, poverty, but also there was to be riches. It will not be a perfect world, we're reminded. It will not be a utopia. It'll not be heaven and earth. And then there was the pale horse. And the pale horse, we're told, represented death. Death shall remain in this sin-stricken world, in this fallen world. Remember what God said to Adam. Adam, in the day that thou sinnest, thou shalt surely die. And all of Adam's progeny, we are living proof of it, die. Death is not a natural thing. That's why we weep. That's why we cry. It's not normal. Death came because of sin. Satan, a man, brought sin into the world. God cannot be held accountable for it. Man sinned voluntarily, willfully. Adam was made with a free will, and he sinned against God, and God warned him. Now, seven cycles as we've seen. And uh, the first cycle, remember, we had the perspective of the church. They were giving us different views. And what was that perspective? Christ is amidst the lampstands. But he's also in heaven. He's the Lamb who has ascended in heaven. Chapter 4, we're told. The Lamb is upon the throne. While he is here on earth, remember he said, Lo, I am with you even till when? Till the end of the age. I am with you. Christ is both in heaven, as he said to Nicodemus, and on earth. How can that be? Well, he is very God. His spirit is amongst his people. Remember what he said, I shall not leave you as orphans, but shall send the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And so Christ is amidst his church. So the first cycle was from the perspective of Christ Ascended into heaven, but also he walks amidst the lampstands. What a a cycle of encouragement. Now again, as I said, these are all happening at the same time. We are given seven perspectives of how God is at work, both on earth and in heaven. And we must remember that. The second cycle, as we thought, is from the perspective of the seals. And I've just given those to you. The first four seals... And the four beasts introduced those are those horses, and they represent trouble, difficulty. But there is one that has gone out first, the rider on the white horse, conquering and to conquer. And of course, we are more than conquerors, as Paul says, through Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. So whilst there is hardship, there is death, there's martyrdom, we saw last time the fifth seal was the souls of the saints slain 
And they pictured us under the altar of God in heaven. It's not as if there is some sort of box in heaven. But the altar represents sacrifice, doesn't it? There were those that gave themselves for the cause and work of Christ, for the gospel. And uh, what does Paul say in Romans 12.1? Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. But many of them found themselves to even be faithful unto death. And they cry, how long, O Lord? And then we saw, didn't we? We saw the sixth seal, which were the great calamities in the earth that come just before that final time. The six seals, or seal, should I say, were the signs in heaven, or will be the signs in heaven. There will perhaps be a concentrated period Pestilences, famines, earthquakes. Well, the Lord tells us this, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 24 and also in Luke's gospel. Now here, as I said in chapter 7, it's as if there is a peering back behind the curtain to encourage us that God, while there is trouble, while there is tribulation in all the earth, God has his sealed number. God has his people. Not one of them will be lost. Of course, Many of them might die by earthquakes and famines. But what can death do? The immediate sequel to death for the child of God, just as Stephen experienced, was to be in the very presence of Christ. Think of the Apostle Paul awaiting the sword of execution. What was the immediate sequel to his death? To be in the very presence with Christ. To be absent from the body, he said, is to be present with the Lord. So what we see here in this chapter, chapter 7, is all of the Lord's people are sealed. And you'll notice that the word sealed, or seal, and sealed, is used some 14 times in this chapter. 14 times at least. Now the purview of this chapter, and the great theme and the motif of this chapter, is here these are God's people that came out of the tribulation of this world, the troubles of this world, whatever they may be. As we said in chapter 6, close of chapter 6, just before that great and final coming. That's the purview of this chapter. When we thought of the four horses, and of course, they come out because of the first horse, because he is altogether victorious. The other three horses and the riders are not victorious. Death shall not have the final say over us. O death, and O grave, where is thy victory? These things shall not conquer us. These things shall not overcome us, because Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered the grave. He has vanquished. Death was once our enemy, but not now. What can death do to the one for whom Christ has died? But just as that thief upon that cross that day, he said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now again, those other three horses and those riders, they're all subservient to Christ's purposes. And by the way, once again, let me remind you that they are used, trial, hardship, unfairness in this world are all used to sanctify the church of Jesus Christ. You know, you think of it, if all was swimmingly well for us as Christians in this life, well, how worldly we could become. It makes us strive, it makes us battle, doesn't it, against the world, against temptation. How we are drawn near to Christ when we feel persecution. You see the saints in Acts chapter 4. How when they were persecuted, they cried out to God in prayer. And they prayed for more courage. They didn't pray that the trial would be taken away from them. They prayed for greater courage that they might preach with greater boldness. And so we're given a glimpse, as it were here, behind the scene. And what we see is every one of God's people come out of the tribulation in this world, and they shall be in heaven. It's a marvelous picture once again. We've seen already the picture of the saints in heaven in chapter 5. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. The great number there represented by 
the four and twenty elders of Israel. Of course, there weren't actually 24 elders of Israel in the Old Testament. Never was a time when there were 24 elders. In fact, there were 70 elders. But never historically in a specific period were there 24 elders. So we know that the number is what we call symbolic. Symbolic of Old Testament saints and also the New Testament saints, as we've seen in chapter 21. Now, the church is represented by both the elders of Israel and the apostles being the foundation of that city, Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem, as we will see in our later studies, always represents God's people, the true Israel. And so, we look at this chapter here this evening. It's a passage, let me say, by way of introduction of instruction and encouragement. The number of things for us to learn here. Now, here's the great question. How is it that each and every one of these redeemed have survived, not physically, but how have they survived the calamities of this world? How is it that they have not fallen away? We're talking here about not loss of life, but loss of soul. How is it that they've not fallen away? How is it they've not become overcome? even in their own sin. Now, there are three enemies, aren't there, for the Christian? The world, the devil, and the flesh. And it usually begins, first of all, the flesh. Flesh is our biggest enemy. As Spurgeon said once, that's his worst enemy, himself. Same with us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the three enemies of the Christian. Well, the Christian, what we'll see here in verses 13 and 14, fought the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the vainglory of life, and Satan himself, by the Lord himself, and by his blood. Verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, as John sees a great number, which no man can number. He says, what are these? It's interesting, he uses the word, what are these? I think of the disciples in the boat with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they said, what manner of man is this? Literally, what realm of man is this in the Greek? Where's he come from? From another realm. And that's the sense here. What are these? In other words, these are amazing. Amazing, not in themselves, but of course by the grace of God. What are these which are arrayed in white robes? How did they, in other words, whence came they? It seems from another realm. Not like the people of this world. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now notice the word, therefore. It is because of this, because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, therefore, they are before the throne. Now this is very instructive. This does not have to do with justification. This has to do with sanctification. And that's the point we need to press home tonight. If you were to wash a white garment, say you had a tablecloth or a white robe, if you were to wash it in some blood, do you think it would come out white? No, it would be stained. So the point here is this is spiritual language meant to convey something. This has to do with purity. This is literally a daily washing. These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes. Literally, in the original, a washing of their robes. Where do we get this from? Well, if you turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. John understood this. And remember that this is the same John who, by the Holy Spirit, has been given instruction to pen these words of the Holy Spirit. 
1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, let's just lay this flat out on the table before we begin. Who is John writing to? He's writing to Christians, okay? He's not writing to the unconverted. He's writing to professing Christians. You've got to go back to the first chapter. He's writing to believers, and he says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Well, because Christ died for us. That's the lesson. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, the Christian will confess his sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He has to. Forgiveness is on the basis of atonement. And Jesus Christ only atoned for his people. Period. And therefore God is just and faithful. He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's interesting. When we confess our sins, what does that mean when we repent? Do we just confess them? When you repent, is it just confessing? Is it just saying, I'm sorry? No, you've got to forsake your sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. The person that simply confesses their sins is not a Christian. Shall I repeat that? The person that simply confesses their sins is not a Christian. But a, a Christian forsakes his sin by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God. And you see, it is when we come before God and we confess our sins, what do we do? We tell God, which he of course already knows that we have sinned. And we don't just confess our sins, but we ask for help. Paul says, if ye by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. The Christian asks for grace. There's no such thing as, I can't overcome this sin. You know, when somebody says to you, well, I'm just sorry, I can't overcome that sin. That's not true. It's, it's a dishonor to Christ to say that. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And he giveth more grace. And the one who truly confesses his sins and forsakes his sins will have mercy, will know pardon, will know God's restoring. That is important and vital. These daily washed, and as they washed, they cleansed their consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9 we're told, verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, one of the problems when we sin is we can get down about it. And the conscience is brought down. But when we confess our sins, and we're reminded again, Christ died for those sins. We're given fresh power and grace again. My sins have been blotted out as far as the east is from the west. But how can I who are now dead to sin, live any more to it. I can't. And so I ask God for help. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, there in Matthew chapter 5, his disciples, hear what I've got to say. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery in his heart, already in his heart. And then he says, if thine right eye offend thee, pluck it out. 
and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, but not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. He's speaking to disciples. And he's saying, look, if if you don't cut it off, you don't pluck it out, you're going to hell. You cut off, or you pluck out, or you burn. Now what do they do? They confess their sins, and they forsake their sins. And they find God gives them help. God gives them strength. There's no such thing as can't. Because what you're doing is you're denying the power of Christ in you. Aren't you? Christ is working effectively in his people. When we come and we confess our sins, we, first of all, we're not weighed down. Of course, we are grieved over our sins. But when we come in sincerity, God reminds us again and again that he is just and he is faithful. He must forgive us of our sins because Christ died. But guess what? He not only forgives us, but he gives us power to overcome our sins in our lives. And this is really what this daily washing is. It is that sanctifying work. Now, friends, let me say this. By way of application, you must not be merely content with confession of sins in your life. Hear what I'm saying? Don't be content with a mere confession of your sins, but a forsaking of them. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. There must be a forsaking, there must be a plucking out. And there must be a, I mean, not literally, but do what it takes is really what he's saying. Deal with that right eye sin, that darling sin. If you just turn to Romans 8, verse 10, Paul says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead. In other words, It's not going to have dominion over you anymore. You're under grace now. That's what it means. The condemning power of the law is not over you. But you're under grace. And when you're under grace, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, what what does he say? And if Christ be in you, the body is dead, Romans 8.10, because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. You see that? Dwell in you. If the spirit of God dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But notice these words. But if ye, or you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You see, you're putting to death sin daily. You're confessing, and you're forsaking, and you're asking for help every day. There's a battle. There's a tribulation. There's a, literally the word here, came out of the great tribulation. The, the Greek word means oppressing. You feel the pressure of the world, the flesh, the devil, everything. But you are strengthened by Christ in you. And you're overcoming sin. There's not merely a confessing, but there's a forsaking. Now there's a great ambivalence, friends, today toward the local church. It is in the local church, should we say, that believers are strengthened. They come under the word, and they come under instruction, and there's accountability. They're accountable not only to one another, but to the elders of the church, to pastoral ministry, and their stewardship of life. This is all part of being sanctified within the body. And so there is this importance, isn't there, to be amongst the Lord's people. And you see them here, even in heaven. They love to be together and to worship the Lord, and to strengthen one another. Each one is joined. I mean, how did the book of the Revelation begin? It began with the churches. People, individuals within a church. Not Christian cowboys, but 
those who were attached to the church, joined to the church, accountable. And there were times the Lord had to say, I have this against you, I have that against you. But he that overcometh every time, overcoming, they're all overcomers. And you see that in this chapter. Every one of God's children are overcomers. They're not proud. They're humble. They receive admonishment. They're not prickly like porcupines. You know, you can't get near them. They take heed. Now that's really the main thrust and purpose of this passage. Everyone is before the throne of God who washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and who have overcome. And so what we see, first of all, notice in verse 1, the angels, we see there are four on the four corners of the earth, north, east, south, and west. Four corners of the earth holding back judgment until the last is sealed. Verse 1, and after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. Of course, the wind here is symbolic. It's the wind of destruction. That the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor on any tree. God's angels here are pictured as standing back, holding God's judgment, ready though to do his bidding, and to come and to do hurt. But we, as we saw at the close of the last chapter, as the saints under the altar crying, How long, O Lord? Well, the Lord has his time, and every one of his sheep has to be saved in this world. Every single one, all that the Father has given Christ, must come to him. Now, notice, here's a verse of encouragement. As the angels are seen here, holding back, as it were, the winds. Verse 2, and I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed, notice, the servants of our God. And here, by the way, notice that Christians are called servants. If you're saved, you're not your own. You're the servant of the living God. You're a child of God. You're saved to serve him, not yourself. We're no longer our own. But I want you to notice here, it says here, having the seal of the living God. Now, what is that? Well, we're told, if you turn to Revelation 14.1, what this seal of the living God is. First of all, it's the seal of the Father. Of course, the Father gave to his Son, They were always his, as the Lord Jesus says in John 17. Thine they were, that was given them unto me. But here, Revelation 14, 1, Behold, and I looked, and lo, a lamb stood in the midst, stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty-four thousands. The same number again that we see in this chapter. Having, notice, his father's name written in their foreheads. So here we see them with a seal, and they're sealed, and it's the Father's name written in their foreheads. Of course, God the Father. So first of all, it's God the Father. Also, if you turn to Ezekiel 9 and the verse 4, you see it in the night visions of Ezekiel, and uh, it's pictured in the Old Testament. The Lord very clearly has his elect, even in the Old Testament, it's revealed there. Ezekiel 9.4 And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Of course, the picture is here is the godly. They're sighing over sin and corruptions in the world. And to the others he said, In mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly, old and young, both maids and little children and women, 
but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. And it tells us that even there will be those in the sanctuary who are not the Lord's. The judgment of God needs to begin at the house of God, doesn't it? Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. So clearly the Lord has, even in the Old Testament, quite clear they even his elect. Now it's not a mark that we can see, but the Lord knoweth them that are his. Second Timothy, we're told, aren't we? This is the one sure foundation. The Lord knoweth them that are his. But secondly, it's not only a seal of the Father, but they are sealed of the Spirit. Where do we get this from? Galatians 4. You know, Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, made under the law. And then we're told, in Galatians 4, 6, And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There wasn't a day that, you know, we believed and we said, well, I'm a Christian, and then we say, God, please send your Spirit in my heart. God quickened us. And because we are God's children, Paul says to the Galatians, because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. We didn't ask God's permission. He just did it. And thank God he did. We are sealed by the Spirit of God, aren't we? And because ye are sons of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 30, we read, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So we are sealed of the Holy Spirit. Of course, God is Spirit. So it is first the seal of the Father and of the Spirit. But also, Paul says, doesn't he, in Romans 8, 9, he that hath not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. So in other words, these angels, they're, they're holding back and they will not be sent until the last one of God's people are sealed. That's the lesson here. Thank the Lord for that. Every day of our lives, there might be trouble in the world. But just remember this. The last sermon hasn't been preached. The last child of God hasn't been brought to Christ. The Lord hasn't saved them yet. And this gives us great encouragement. There's no, the Lord will not hold on after that. As soon as that takes place, now again, as I said here, notice, and this is very important that we see here in this chapter, that these are called servants. These servants are, are not to be, are, are to be kept. And I heard the number of them, sorry, verse 3, saying, Heard not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So every one of Christ's Children, or God's children, and those that are bought by the blood of Christ are called servants. And they are known by God. God knows his people. Now, I want to come this evening very briefly to the number which is mentioned in the verse 4. This, uh, I suppose, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have run very fast and wild with this verse. We want to seek to explain it from Scripture. Scriptures must obviously interpret Scripture. What is meant here by this 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel? Well, I believe this is the best way or, or, or the true interpretation. We have seen, haven't we, from Revelation chapter 5 through to chapter 8, that there are... 24 elders. There are 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Each tribe of Israel here, we're told, there's a thousand added to them, or a thousand of Joseph and so on. But what do we make of the number 1,000? This is important. Well, all of these numbers, let me say, 
are symbolic. I'll come to the number 1,000 in a moment. But let's just consider this 144, and then we'll consider the significance of 1,000 here. So there's a 12 times 12, obviously, is 144. You've got 12 tribes here, and 1,000 from each. If you turn to Revelation 14, verse 3, here's how we can see that the number is not to be taken literally, but symbolically. I want you to notice a few things. Revelation 14, verse 3. And you'll see this is a further description of the 144,000. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. Again, we're here now before the scene in heaven. And before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with woman, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God. And firstfruits, as in those that are of the Lord, and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now the first thing we need to Notice here, despite what the Jehovah's Witnesses think, that by the way, these are all males. If you were to take this literally, there's no woman in heaven. They have not defiled themselves with woman. And by the way, they're all Jews. Got to be Jews. If you're going to take it in the literal sense, they're all Jews. They've never defiled themselves with woman. They've never spoken an ill word in this world. There was no guile found in their mouth. They're without fault. They've never sinned. It's not to be taken literally in the literal sense. Of course, the male virgins doesn't mean literal male virgins, but those who are truly virgins unto the Lord. That's the sense. It's the same again in chapter 21, when we shall see the city of Christ. You see the number and the measurements. We don't have time to look at it tonight, but you can study that for yourself. The measurements of the wall, they have to do with the apostles and they have to do with the elders. And again, the wall of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the whole is seen as a cube, as it were, and that represents God's people. A perfect city, perfectly measured. And the Lord knows the number. Now, in other words, when we think of Israel, Here, even in the Old Testament, within the body, within the corpus of nationalistic Israel, were always a remnant, a spiritual Israel, a people that were of faith, the true seed of Abraham, the children of the promise. Remember what Paul said, not everyone is a Jew who is a Jew, but he who is circumcised inwardly, For circumcision, he said, is of the heart, not of the flesh. And what about Israel? What about, if we were to take this as literal Israel, what about Enoch? What about Abel? What about even Abraham? Abraham was before Israel. Of course, Israel is another word or name for Jacob. What about all those Old Testament saints that lived thousands over 1,600 years, 1,700 years before Abraham. What about them? Are they lost? Well, we see very clearly from the Scriptures that these men were saved. The church existed long before Israel. As I said, Abel, Enoch, Noah, and so on, Seth. That's the true Israel. In Genesis 4.26, we read, we thought, Lord's Day evening about Cain and Abel. But you notice at the end of that chapter, it says that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's when the church existed, long before nationalistic Israel, long before that. In Acts 7, verse 38, Stephen is before the council, and he says this, This is he, speaking of Moses, that was in the church 
in the wilderness. The church existed in the Old Testament. It was called the called out or the ecclesia and so on. Something else, if you turn to Romans 9 verse 6, Paul affirms that not all Israel are Israel. Romans 9 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. That's what Paul says, and he's speaking about election. He's even talked about Jacob and Esau. He's spoken about Isaac, spoken about Ishmael. Of course, not all Israel are Israel. It's not as if he says the promises of God have failed. No. He says, because they are the seed, neither because they are the seed of Abraham, they are all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In other words, after Isaac's way, children of the promise. Galatians 3.27, we read there, if you turn there, Galatians 3.27, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. And he says this, And if ye be, in, ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed. Abraham's seed. The promised seed. Children of faith and heirs according to the promise. Again, he speaks in Galatians 6, verse 15, and he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God are God's people. So it ought to be very clear to us, as Paul even says in Romans 2.29. Circumcision is of the heart, and he who is a Jew is one inwardly. It's not of the flesh. So what about this number 144,000? We've said there are 12 tribes. We know we've read of them here. And by the way, the sons of Joseph aren't mentioned as such, but uh, Joseph is mentioned. Now we know that they're in him, in his loins. But what about the number thousands? You've got 12 times 12. What about the number thousand? The number thousand signifies all. Let me show you from Scripture. For example, if you turn to Deuteronomy 7, the verse 9. This is a precious verse. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now, do we conceive for a millisecond that the thousand and oneth generation, the Lord won't keep covenant? This is what we call euphemism. This is an expression here. In other words, what is being said is God is faithful to all generations. And so what is being emphasized here in Revelation Chapter 7, concerning this 12 times 12 times 1,000, is all of God's people, the entire body of God's people. God cannot lie. That's what is being emphasized. Just like God will not rescind his promise to the 101th generation, God will carry on throughout all generations until his last elect is saved, is sealed, and saved. And then the end will come. That's simply what is being said. Now, this cannot mean Israel in the nationalistic sense. It would be ludicrous to suggest that. Now, you notice something we need to try and draw to a close here. John, in verse 4, it says there, and I heard the number of them which were sealed. Did you notice... John doesn't say there, I saw the number, but he heard. This is the elect from God's perspective. From God's perspective, there is a number. And God knows that number. But later on, if you come down to the verse 9, John says, and after this, 
I beheld or I saw. What did he see? A great multitude, which no man can number. In other words, what we've got is we've got the redeemed from two perspectives. He hears a number from heaven. But then he sees that number. And he says, you know what? I can't number it. It's a vast number. It was impossible for John. So we're seeing it from two vantage points. It's quite simple, but it's very profound, isn't it? This is how God speaks to us here. You see, the point is God knows his elect. It's a vast number. there's There's a number. No one will be in heaven who Christ did not die for. I'm sorry, but I I, I have to reject this idea that Christ died sufficiently for all, but effectually for some. That, That is bogus. That is false theology. Christ died for his elect, and we're told there, aren't we, in Galatians 4, 6, because we are sons of God, God has sent forth his Spirit into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You don't decide that God is going to send his spirit into your hearts. You are convicted of your sin because God has sent his spirit in your heart. You are a child of God by grace. You hath he quickened. While we must preach the gospel to all men, God will save all of his people. We do not know who they are. And that's not our business. John sees here a number which no man can number. But God knows, doesn't he? And we must leave those things of God with God. What did the Lord Jesus say? He said, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. John 6, 39, and this is the Father's will which has sent me that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, nothing. He died for his people. He purged their sins on the cross. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Isaiah 53, 11. We're told, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He didn't bear the iniquities for anyone else but his people. We believe in particular redemption. Well, this is the Father's will, that Christ should lose nothing. And we see here, everyone is sealed who is the Lord's. And notice next, what do the people do in heaven? Well, they praise God. They worship him forever and ever. Of course, because of grace. They don't deserve to be there. It's the entire work of grace. Verse 10, and cried with a loud voice, that's all the saints in heaven, saying, salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So what do they do? They thank him forever and ever. They pay homage to this God of grace, eternal grace. That gave my soul a hiding place, Jesus Christ. And notice verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces. I can't imagine what that's going to be like being amidst a myriad of angels, friends. How glorious will that be when we see angels who weren't redeemed. And by the way, there will not be one single redeemed angel, but they will thank God and praise God for our redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. What a glorious day this will be. And it's endless praise to the Lamb that was slain. It's the worship of the redeemed in heaven. And you notice they have whitened robes which speaks of their purity. These are they which came out of the great tribulation and made white or washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They also have, notice, their palms in their hands. We know that this is the theme of redemption. We know that when the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? If you turn there to Matthew 21, verse 8, when he was riding in that colt of an ass, upon that colt of an ass into Jerusalem, soon to be put to death for his people. And we read how the streets were strawed with branches from the trees. 
Matthew 21, 8. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and followed, crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna, by the way, means save now or send salvation. In the Psalm 116 through to the Psalm 118 is the section which we call the Haliel, that they would sing at the Passover. And those very words, Hosanna, are mentioned in the Psalm 118 at the close of the Haliel, just as they were about to eat the Passover. And we read, it's interesting, I will praise thee for thou hast heard me, thou art become my salvation, the stone which the builders refused or rejected is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And we have these words, save now, or literally, Hosanna. And that has to do with Christ. That's what he came to do. My, I, I've often wondered how wonderful it must have been to see the Lord Jesus riding in. What a solemn day that must have been. He said even the stones would cry out to see him riding in on that lowly, he who is creator of all things. And the people laying down their palm branches. But one day we shall be in heaven with whited robes and perfect and singing our hosannas to him who loved us and gave himself for us. Well, they they thank him and praise him. Look at verse 12. And by the way, when you look at verse 12 in the original, there is what we call a definite article, and there are seven ascriptions given in verse 12 to Christ and to the Father, to God, saying, Amen. Literally, this is the way it would read if, if it was a definite article, saying, Amen, the blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the might. These are all glorious ascriptions given to God. In salvation, they are praising God for his power, for his wisdom, for his blessing, for all that he has given us in Christ forever. And these are they, verse 13 and 14, that have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, this is spiritual language saying, these people, they were in the tribulation of this world, and they didn't succumb to this world. I must close with this. Entertain no thought, my friend, of being in heaven if you are not daily confessing and forsaking your sins. Who are these? They came out of the tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Never say, I can't overcome this sin. Because what you're saying is, God's Holy Spirit in me is insufficient to do the job. That's really what you're saying. And actually what you're saying is, I'm not a Christian. Don't dishonor the name of Jesus Christ and say, I can't do it. Say with Paul in Philippians, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. If we have Christ, we will be overcoming. That's the great point, isn't it? Are you overcoming? I'm not saying perfectly. 
But as you look at your life and as I look at my life, can we say, I'm overcoming. I'm not what I ought to be. But thank God, there's a fight in me. Look at them. They're praising God. But it's true about Christians here on earth. Do we not know? Friends, exploits over sin in our life now. We should know it. And every Lord's Day we come to gather. We should have new reasons to praise Him. Wouldn't you agree? And we should give thanks that we're not in the world anymore. That we are overcoming. That we have a Savior that receives us despite our sin. And, and we love to be amongst the brethren. I, I don't understand how those who, who can't be bothered to be here on the Lord's Day will think that they'll be in heaven. Praising God forever and ever. Endless praise. And yet, can't give the Lord the Lord's day. More preoccupied with things and stuff of this world. I don't understand it. And if you're not overcoming, what are you saying? Thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. They will overcome. They will confess. They will forsake. And they'll not say, it's too hard. They will say, Lord, I'm weak. They will cry with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. He is the strength and the sufficiency of all of his people. And you go and prove it. And you prove it every week and you come back and you have new cause to praise him and to lift up your voice in thanksgiving that you are overcoming. John, he gives us at least seven reasons whereby we may know that we are the children of God. If we love him, we keep his commandments, we love his people, we love not the world, well, we could go on. Did you read them for yourself? One of the things we know is that we have sanctification in the life. I say with, once again, these are they that wash their robes. This is nothing to do with justification. But it is sanctification. Paul says, for ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication and so on. You know what? I close with this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, But of him ye are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, as we've sung here, or we will sing in glory, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Now you make the connection as I close. If Christ is made for us those four things, you don't take any one of those four things out. Because what you then have is a deficient and a defunct salvation. And it's not the complete Christ. For some people, Christ is simply... Redemption to heaven, but not redemption from sin. Paul says, Christ, through him ye are in Christ Jesus, of who God has made unto us wisdom. He gives you wisdom for life. Righteousness is your righteous standing before God. And sanctification. You're a changed person. And Redemption. You can't just be the one and you knock off like some people like to do with the Ten Commandments, you know. They say, well, there's only nine. 
The fourth commandment doesn't apply to them. Nonsense. Christ is our sanctification as much as he is our redemption. And it's a joy, isn't it, to walk in his wisdom and to know his righteousness. Those things, four things Christ is to us. And if he is, we will be sanctified. And then finally, we shall be glorified with him. Now there's a lot more to say on this chapter. May the Lord take what has been feebly said for the good of your souls and the glory of his name. Amen.